0: Listening to Solace Radio on the Meander Radio Network. For me, back in 1980, beginning back to 1981, 1982, um, in Colorado Springs, that's when the Lord uh, got a hold of my life. I was a Baptist uh, minister, I was helping to build Southern Baptist churches in Colorado Springs. And helping to start new fellowships and discipling people, and I was a teacher, and and um, the Lord got a hold of my life and said He wanted something more from me. I, I I was overwhelmed. There were there were men I didn't even particularly care for, but they would speak, and it just the word would just burn through my heart, and I knew God was talking to me. And finally, I yielded, and I went to get some counsel from some other brethren, and they said, "Well, what what is the Lord saying to you?" And I said, "I don't know. That's the problem. All I know is." I'm, he's calling, and I and I have this overwhelming sense of, and the only word that makes sense to me is the word bondservant. That's something that comes from Torah. Did you know the law of the bondservant is the first instruction written and recounted by Moses after the Ten Commandments? We God spoke with His voice, for the mountain, the Ten Commandments, and then Moses went up to get all the rest of the instruction and he came back and he recounted it for us. The first written instruction that Moses recounted is the law of the bondservant. I didn't really understand what that meant. I did know, though, that men like Paul and Peter and John, when they would write the various writings to the brethren, they would say things like, Paul a bondservant of Yeshua the Messiah called an Apostle. That Paul put this thing about bondservant even before he put the word Apostle. One of the other things I had noted was that the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1, is written to his bondservants to show to them the things that are shortly to take place. It's not written just to anybody. And I was overwhelmed with this sense of that I needed to find out what a bondservant was, and that was what God was calling me to. So in the course of the Baptist thing I was involved with, well, I was brought before the entire assembly to be examined. For those of you who are with the Baptist, you know what I'm talking about, for the ordination service. And one of the men there asked me that night, Monty, what is the first thing the Lord has told you to do? And I just thought that was the most brilliant, wise statement question I had ever heard in the entire process. I thought, yes, if one is going to be submitting his life to God, truly submitting, what has God said that he wants me to do? And so I started to answer to to compliment his question, and that was the first time I've ever had the experience. My mouth opened and words came out, and I was listening. And my mouth said to study the prophets. And I was literally inside going, really, Lord? (laughs) You want me to study the prophets? And uh, that year, I began a study of the book of Isaiah. And in the course of that study, it was in 1982, I was studying the book and then teaching. You know, one of the best ways to study a book is to be forced to have to teach it. That's right. You know, teachers always learn much more than the students do. And so it was a wonderful exercise for me to to commit myself to do that. So I began with the book of Isaiah. And uh, there's a lot of chapters in Isaiah. You know, if you're going to go one chapter a week, uh, you're going to be in this book a while. So we named the class Isaiah through in 82 and we didn't make it, so we renamed it Isaiah Free in 83. <laughs> and by the time I got to chapter 58 of the book of Isaiah, my life began to turn upside down. Upside down. God told me, He said, in just real clear terms, As a matter of fact, turn there just a moment with me. Let me show you what the Lord starts out with, a series of questions. Isaiah 58, verse 1, cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. Why have we fasted? And thou dost not see. Why have we humbled ourselves and thou dost not notice? Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with the wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I choose? A day for a man to humble himself? Is it for the bowing of one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? That passage of scripture, the prophet is basically saying to Israel, yes, you've sought the Lord for just decisions. You are a nation that you claim to have righteousness and have done the will of God and have kept the ordinance of God, but you missed it. You know what really penetrated me? As I was reading through that passage and beginning to think on it, I was saying, hey, yes, this is me, this is me, this is me. Uh Uh-oh. What I'm doing, I'm calling my walk with God acceptable to you, Lord. Only you say it's not. I thought it was. I thought my life, being a Baptist minister, was acceptable to the Lord. It's what all my teachers had taught me. But yet I'm confronted with the word and and I'm finding that there's some question. Maybe maybe it doesn't quite satisfy the Lord. So I said, well, Lord, what's the answer to this? What's what's the answer? And then the Lord says in verse 6, Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free? And break every yoke. Right. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your flesh? isn't You know, my idea of fasting in those days was that I'd leave the food in the cupboard and I'd go fast. The Lord's idea of the fast is you take the food from your cupboard that you aren't going to eat and go minister to someone who's hungry. Come on. And you fast because you've served another, because you've given of you to them. You know why the widow's mites is called the greatest example of giving? You know why? You remember the Messiah, he had the disciples take note of the widow giving the two mites. And he said of her, she has given more than all the others. Now, how is that possible? How can two mites be more than all of the silver coins and the gold and so forth that was given by the others? And he gives us a simple answer. He says, all the others gave from their abundance. She gave from her need. She gave her life. She needed those mites and more. And yet she preferred the need of another and said, their need is greater than my need. I will give my life for them. This is the work of the Messiah. This is the work of the Messiah. He gave his own life. And I said, my goodness, you know, I'm a pretty good giver. I've been tithing and all that, but oh my goodness, I've been giving out of my abundance. I haven't given my life yet. I've gone into no need to minister to another. And then it goes further. It got kind of interesting. He says there's a promise. Your light will break out like the dawn. Your recovery will speedily come forth. Your righteousness will go forth before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. That's the kind of relationship I want with God. I want to be able to call upon the name of the Lord and the Lord immediately say, yes, Monty. Here I am. He promises this relationship. I had to admit at that time, I didn't have that relationship. Oh, I had, according to the world's standards, I was more than adequately a religious man. But I have a confession to make. When I called upon the Lord, which I didn't do all that often because I didn't want to test it too much, I wasn't sure if he was going to be there. Quite honestly, I had everybody else faked out except the Lord, of course. Then he says, if you will look at verse 10, and if you'll give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday and the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in the scorched places and give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins and you will raise up the age-old foundations and you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restore of the streets in which to dwell. And then this is the verse that blew me away. If, because of the Sabbath, you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word. Listen to this promise. Then you will take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Lord said to me, Monty, you were born a Jew. I want you to be a Jew. Let me tell you something. My theology was in deep trouble. In fact, I told the Lord, I said, Lord, if I start acting like a Jew, these Baptists will boot me. And praise God, they did. And I began the small steps of keeping Sabbath in my home. And then I began to say, what other commandments do you have, Lord? And I began to learn the commandments. And I began to go back and try to learn again. All over. All over new. And I made a very interesting discovery that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still here. (laughs) Furthermore, some other pieces of my life began to take shape. When I was a 20-year-old man, a very young man getting involved with the ministry and being discipled. Another man who was taking the responsibility for me to disciple me, he had come to me early on and he'd said, Monty, I'm not in the custom of doing this, but the Lord has told me to do something for you. It's not for right now. It will be later in your life, Monty. I'm going to give you a verse, a set of verses. They are your life verses. Later in your life, God is going to show you what he's been doing with your life. He'll explain it to you. You won't understand it right now, but later there'll be a time when you'll understand and God will be explaining to you what's happening. The verse was from Deuteronomy 8. And the verse basically goes like this. I'm going to give you the power to gain wealth in your hands. Boy, I love that part of the verse. And in fact, up to the time of 1983 and so forth, my testimony, if you were to hear the length of it, truly God did that. I um, am one of those guys who uh, graduated from high school but never got my degree. Rose to the ranks of being a vice president of an engineering company, and all my colleagues that worked for me were PhDs. Let me tell you something. You cannot rise in these days to be the vice president of a major aerospace company and have six PhDs working for you unless God has put you there. God turned the favor of men and taught me how to be a leader and how to be the man that I was. He gave me the power in my hands to gain wealth. And my testimony is very clear with regard to that. But the, the, the rest of the verse goes on to say this. So that he might confirm the covenant he has made with your fathers as it is this day. Now, I did not understand that verse back as a young man. I, did, I, I was focusing in on the first part. But when I got to Isaiah 58 and he talked about returning the heritage of Jacob, my father, to me, then I remembered that verse. You mean God... That you've been preparing me, you've been blessing me so that you could confirm the covenant that you made with my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're going to do, you're going to cause me to ride on the heights of the earth and give me my heritage back. I said, I think I'd like that. Because I was just a Kansas farm boy who had grown up in Kansas with a last name Judah, and thank God nobody in Kansas knew that Judah was a Jewish name, so I didn't have a whole lot of trouble. But as I began to explore my heritage and ask God to teach me, one of the things that became very apparent to me in the course of this that I needed to go back and learn the instruction of my fathers, the covenants that God had made with them. And that's when I learned, and I'm sure you're learning this in Torah also, Those promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not just for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are also for their descendants. And that in the new covenant, we learn that it's not just physical descendancy. It's the children of promise who get these promises. The children of promise get them. And so I said, well, it's pretty clear to me by physical descendancy, I hail from them. It's pretty clear by spiritual heritage as a believer in the new covenant, I certainly have it. It seems to me I'm supposed to have this, whatever this is. And so in the course of studying the book of Isaiah, and if you will turn back with me now to Isaiah 28, the Lord began to open up certain passages of Scripture to me to give me an understanding of them as I began to inquire and ask of the Lord, what are your instructions? What are your commandments? One of the things that the Lord had, of course, put within my heart was a great interest in the second coming. You know, Lord, when are you coming? And this is a very interesting passage here in Isaiah 28 because it talks about those things. And it also talked about the dilemma of where I was at in my life. If you look in Isaiah 28... Beginning at verse 9, hold your finger there for a moment. Let me cut to the chase so you know that this is about the end times. If that same chapter, move over to verse 22. The conclusion of this passage I'm about to read is, And now do not carry on as scoffers, lest your fetters be made stronger. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts of decisive destruction on all the earth. We're talking about the end of the age. So this passage is going to be concluding with something to do with the end of the age. All right. So we begin at verse nine now. And he says, to whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast. For he says, order on order. Order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said, here is rest, give rest to the weary and here is repose," But they would not listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, little here, little there, that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. You know, one of the things that really disturbed me the most in those days, after I began to be reacquainted to my heritage and to the Torah, to the prophets, to Sabbath, to keeping kosher and so forth, one of the things that hit me was, Lord, Lord, Why is it that my ancestors who are the most religious people in the world who had the covenants of God, the Torah and the prophets who were looking for the Messiah to come, who had the temple and the priestly service, who had all of this history and heritage from the Lord. How is it possible that the Messiah showed up and they blew it? What happened? Well, that's what this passage talks about. They have the instruction of God, order on order, line on line, but they didn't listen. They have it here, but instead they've stumbled backwards. They've been broken, snared, taken captive. captive all the way to the extent they were scattered into all the nations. Why didn't the Torah, why didn't the prophecies work for them? Why didn't they get it? What was the mistake they made? And the thing that really penetrated me about that was if those people... In that day, with their devotion toward God, if they can make that mistake about the Messiah coming the first time, what is to stop us, this people today, making the same mistake for the Messiah coming the second time? What's our guarantee? What's our assurance that we'll get it right? And by the way, that Isaiah 58 passage said, and I had already confessed, I thought I had been doing the right things and he told me fundamentally I was not doing anything that was acceptable to the Lord. I had missed it. And I was just barely getting the glimmer of that there's more to this instruction in faith. How in the world are we to be ready for the coming of the Messiah if we're that fouled up about the basics of our faith? And that began to penetrate me, and I asked the Lord, Lord, please, we don't want to make that mistake again. Would you help us? Would you help me? I don't want to make that mistake again. Give me the insight. Help me to see, to hear, to understand. And I begged the Lord to do it. And that's when the Lord began to open up certain passages of Scripture to me, specifically this one, Isaiah 28, because what I'm now about to read to you is this is, it's got this word, therefore, if you'll look there, verse 14, therefore. You know, you know, it's an old teaching. If you see the word, therefore, you're supposed to go and find out what it's there for. Now, he said, even though they have Torah. They won't quite get it. you got to have something more. Yeah, There's got to be something more. And so what the therefore is, now we're getting to the real punchline. Why has why has he said this? What What is it that's the real message the prophet wants to say? So he's going to speak to something that's going to be happening at the end of the age that will help us to get ready. All right? You with me now? We're getting ready. We're, this is very important information that's going to help us to be ready. So we need to listen real carefully to what he says. Therefore, Hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said we have made a covenant with death, and with the Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed, and I will make justice the measuring line, righteousness the level. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters shall overflow the secret place, and your covenant with death shall be canceled. Your pact with Sheol shall not stand. And when the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you will become its trampling place. As often as it passes through, it will seize you. For morning after morning, it will pass through any time during the day or night. And it will be sheer terror to understand what it means. The bed is too short on which to stretch out. The blanket is too small to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up at Mount Parazim. He will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon to do his task, his unusual task, and to work his work, his extraordinary work, and now do not carry on as scoffers, lest your fetters be made stronger, for I have heard from the Lord God of hosts of decisive destruction on all of the earth. This is a passage that is describing a particular event, a covenant that Israel shall enter into at the end of the age, that when you see this covenantal agreement that Israel enters into, it will be a precursor to the end of the age, the day of the Lord, the coming of the king. And so there is very precise clues given here for he who will see, he who will listen. Now, what the Lord showed me in 1983 was the following, that this covenant is the same covenant that is spoken of by Daniel. You know the verse in Daniel 9, 27, about the 70th week of Israel, a seven-year period in the history of Israel in which they will enter into a covenantal agreement, a peace treaty, in which that many characteristics of that treaty are defined for us. In fact, in my study, I have defined... 16 discrete prophecies that identify what that covenant will be about and certain things that we will see about it. Now, before we go just a little bit further and talk about the history of what we've been watching for the last six years, let me introduce you to another concept that comes from Torah, which really talks about secrets and mysteries. Because a lot of this is concealed. This is concealed. And in fact, Daniel specifically says that many things are sealed up until the appointed time and that certain men of understanding will come at the end of the age and give understanding to many. By the way, we'll get into it a little bit later, but there's clear signs as to what those men of understanding are supposed to be able to do. I say that to you because when Moses went back to the children of Israel, God gave him three specific signs to come from the mountain to go into the presence of the children of Israel and say it's time for the exodus. If you recall, he got a staff that could be made into a snake and back into a staff. He could turn water into blood and he could stick his hand in his cloak and it would come out leprous, put it back in and it was clean. Three signs. The Torah teaches us by the evidence of two or three, truth is established. And it also gives us in the end time prophecies that certain of these secrets that have to do with the end of the age will come forth. The understanding will come forth by men of understanding and they will be able to do certain signs for you. Let me review the three just real quickly for you. In Daniel chapter 8, there's a vision given to Daniel called the vision of the evenings and mornings. It says that from the time of the abomination of desolation, the sacrifice ceases until the temple is restored. There should be 2300 evenings and mornings. Daniel doesn't understand the vision. Gabriel comes to explain. But in the course of the explanation, he says in verse 26, chapter 8. Now concerning the vision of the evenings and mornings, Daniel, it is true, but seal it up until the appointed time. And then in Daniel 12... Daniel specifically asks again, what's the outcome of these things? Seal it up, Daniel, until the appointed time. Those who have insight, they will come and give the understanding to many. So one of the signs is those men of understanding have to explain the vision of the evenings and mornings. What is that 2,300 evenings and mornings mean? Because it has something to do with the great tribulation and the end of the age and decisive destruction upon the earth sign number 1 sign number 2 i'm sure you're familiar with this verse revelation 13:18 here is wisdom let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast it is the number of a man and his number is 666. That prophecy is not primarily about the Antichrist and the number of a name. It's a prophecy about how you identify the men of understanding. They can do this calculation and show it to you. Number three, Revelation seventeen nine. Here is the mind that has wisdom. There are seven kings. There's a riddle. There are seven kings, five were, one is, one will come, but he will only remain for a short time. The beast is the eighth, but he's one of the seven. It's a riddle. They'll solve the riddle. Just like Daniel did to Nebuchadnezzar. What we should be looking for, brethren, is we should be hoping for and looking for the men of understanding who will come at the end of the age and explain what these prophecies are about. What I'm trying to give you a sense of, God has planned it to where all the understanding is not immediately available. Our brother talked about progressive revelation. I can show you very specifically the words are there, but the understanding is missing until we get to the end times. And there's a specific way that God says the understanding will come forth. So here we are. Back again at Isaiah 28. I had prayed to the Lord, Lord, help me to understand. I desire to understand. And the Lord had showed me, said, Monty, this is about that covenant that Israel will enter into, that seven year covenant. This is the verse, this is the passage that says that the leaders of Israel will be scoffers of God when they enter into it. They'll use falsehoods and deception to do this agreement. But the agreement won't cover everything. It'll be like a short blanket, a bed you can't get comfortable with. And it will be a covenant with death. This will harm Israel. It will not help Israel. One of the other things that the Lord showed me is, and with regard to insight, coming from Daniel 9, that it would be a covenant made with Israel the 70th week. It's not just any seven years. It has to be seven Hebrew years, seven years of Israel in the life of Israel. That means it has to be years from Rosh Hashanah to Rosh Hashanah, not just any time of the calendar, seven Hebrew years, because all the other 70 week prophecies all came in that sequence. So that 70th one better match that too. So I said, gee, that's interesting. You mean we're looking for a covenant that Israel will enter into which will be a seven-year agreement and it will begin on or about a Rosh Hashanah. And the seven years will be seven Hebrew years we're referring to. Then there was something else that the Torah began to show me and teach me. I had made the observation as a New Covenant believer going back into and studying Torah that the number 3,000 was one of those Torah clues that gave us a sign. The number three thirty. 3,000 is always about covenants. Three fathers established the covenants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant made with our fathers. When Israel was in the wilderness with Moses, and Moses brought the covenant down, he brought the tablets down. You remember they sinned. They made the golden calf. He threw down the tablets. And that day, 3,000 sons of Israel were judged right. who had sacrificed to the golden calf. When the new covenant came, the same day, That's right. the same day when the Holy Spirit was given, 3,000 were saved. Amen. The Lord said to me, this covenant with death will also have the sign of the 3,000. It's a covenant. And there was other things we began to glean and understand from this passage. So having now set this passage before us, I want you to keep this passage before you. And now let's move to the present tense. Because I'm getting ready to show you that something has been happening before our eyes in this world and we're not getting it. Our brethren are not listening They're not observing. And instead of understanding, we're getting ready to make the same mistake. We're getting ready to stumble, fall backward, and be taken captive because we won't believe. So the charts that I have before you now is going to put you on a little bit of a history tour of things that I know that you're familiar with and that you've been watching right along with me. It's called the Middle East Peace Accord. September 1993, White House lawn. All news networks broke away from the regular broadcasting and began to broadcast this one signal. In fact, I was getting up that morning in my home in Norman. And as I got up, I was taking a shower and I turned the TV on and Here's this news broadcast from the White House. And I said, oh, I don't want to watch that. Let's see what else is on TV. So I flipped the channel. And it's the same broadcast, only it's the other network. And I said, wow, we've got two networks on the same thing. Flip the channel. Every channel on the TV had the same broadcast. What's going on at the White House? And I heard the announcer say, Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat, were at the White House and getting ready to come out with the President to sign some agreement. Man, you talk about shock. This is the first time ever Yasser Arafat had ever been in the United States, let alone the White House. First time. First time Yitzhak Rabin, a leader of Israel, has ever met with the PLO. Ever. For the first time. ever and they're getting ready to sign some agreement? What agreement? And they walked out, and you remember the famous handshake. Yitzhak Rabin reluctantly shook his hand. I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, what what is this? And I said to myself, where's Rosh Hashanah? Oh my goodness, Rosh Hashanah was just the other day. It's at the season of Rosh Hashanah. They're making an agreement with their enemies. What is this agreement? I'm sitting in my underwear on the edge of my bed stunned. And I said there, Lord, show me the sign of the 3,000. Where's the sign of the 3,000? Is this it? Is this the agreement? Is this the covenant that the prophet spoke of? And at that moment, the announcer said, for the first time in the history of the White House, we have exactly 3,000 witnesses to observe this agreement. And by the way, you can go back to the news reports, the encyclopedia, if you wish, about that event, and they report that fact. Now I said, what is this agreement about? What are they agreeing to? What is? How long is this agreement? What is this? Is this agreement about Jerusalem? Because we know Jerusalem is supposed to be the trembling cup at the end of the age. That will be the great controversy of all the nations. Well, they didn't give a whole lot of details, but this is what they did say. The president said that this is a conflict dating back to the days of Isaac and Ishmael. There is no greater conflict in the history of the world than this one. The world press said this is the greatest negotiated peace agreement in the history of the world. The entire international press media called it that. Sounds like a kind of an interesting agreement, don't you think? Maybe we should be paying attention to what this is about. Israel, the leaders of Israel, Shimon Peres specifically. I was very curious, what's Israel's motivation here? Because the prophecy talks about their motivation. Here's what Shimon Perez said, why Israel was entering into the agreement. I'm quoting. So that the overwhelming scourge of war will pass us by. With the exception of the word war, he quoted Isaiah. The exact words of Isaiah. Arafat, on the other hand, had some different things to say. It's not what he said in English. It's what he said to the Arabs when he went back and spoke in Arabic. Here's what he said. He says, I'm making a temporary peace with Israel like Muhammad did with his enemies. I'm on the mountains and when they're in the city and when they relax, I will sweep down from the mountains and destroy all the inhabitants of the city. Ask yourself a fundamental question. Every Arab leader in the history of the world that's ever made peace with Israel or made an agreement with Israel has been assassinated by the Arabs themselves. Why is it that Yasser Arafat stole a lot? Because he told them in Arabic, this is my plan to kill them. Now this is a peace agreement? This is a peace agreement? Jeremiah the prophet said they shall be saying peace, peace, but there will be no peace. And really, this is a peace agreement, P-I-E-C-E, because Jews have been blown to pieces because of this agreement. So in those early days, there in 1993, in the fall of 1993, we began to examine the prophecies. There's another interesting prophecy that Paul gives us, 1 Thessalonians 5.3. And while they're saying, peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them. Do you know what the official name of the Middle East peace agreement is? the Peace and Security Agreement. That's the official name of the agreement. If you download that agreement to read it, that's what you'll see on the title. And everybody calls it the Peace and Security Agreement. Almost immediately, the critics of this agreement within Israel began to cry out and say, this doesn't cover everything. It doesn't deal with Jerusalem or the other key issues. It's, in fact, one press report said, this is a blanket that's too short. And he quoted Isaiah. (laughs) Nobody can get comfortable with this agreement, just like Isaiah said. What's very interesting also in that passage there in Isaiah 28 verse 14 is that it said that the leaders of Israel that would be making this agreement would be scoffers of God (laughs) And when the agreement began in 1994 and 1995, I'm sure you remember this term, they called it the land for peace deal. We're going to trade off some pieces of land and we're going to get peace in exchange. And the logic of the agreement was to build a series of interim agreements. By that I mean that it's not we're going to make one agreement, we're going to make a whole series of agreements piling up together and, and the idea was each agreement builds trust and confidence between the parties and that we learn how to be peaceful. Well, of course, it was a kind of a novel concept from politicians, but as you can tell, it hasn't worked very well at all. But that was the logic of it. And furthermore, they said, Jerusalem is not on the table. We're not negotiating Jerusalem. These are just interim agreements. And in 1994 and 1995, while we were watching and seeing what was... there, There wasn't a lot of details coming forth about the agreement. But finally... In the fall of 1995, we put together what was called the Oslo II Agreement. And in the Oslo II Agreement, for the first time, Israel began to turn over pieces of land in the Sumerian and Judean areas to the Palestinians in various levels of control. Area A's and Area B's. Uh, Area A's total control of the Palestinian, Area B. It's under the control of the Palestinians, but Israeli security forces are still there and things like that. And there was these chunks of land being offered up. About that time, in September of 1995, there was a very interesting press report that was leaked by the Vatican through La Stampa magazine. The Vatican reported that there was a secret part to the Middle East peace agreement, and it had to do with Jerusalem. Now, everybody had been saying Jerusalem is not part of this negotiation. It's not part of this agreement. But suddenly there's this secret purport that Shimon Peres has specifically agreed with the Vatican, with Arafat, about something about Jerusalem. And anytime you hear about Shimon Peres doing that, which his name means he who divides, you need to take note. Because, oh, by the way... All of the names of the leaders of the the prime ministers of Israel, they are the prophetic story of what's happening to Israel. Did you know that? The meaning of all their names. Perez has been the man who's been trying to divide. Remember Yitzhak Shamir? The thorny hedge, he who resists. And boy, did he. Rabin, the many strong ones. And you're going to see something very interesting about his name in a moment. And I'll get through the other names as we go through them. So we have the Oslo II agreement, and what we're being told what we're being told is that uh, there is some evidence that Jerusalem is to be divided, and they, they also say that the, there's a Golan deal about the Golan Heights. However, Yitzhak Rabin says no to the Golan. No, we will not give back the Golan. And almost immediately thereafter, Yitzhak Rabin is assassinated. Now, what was so interesting was that a few weeks before his death, he made the following statements. He was arguing with Jewish authorities, and they were against the Middle East peace deal, and he, they were using the argument of the Scriptures from the Torah. Why? That God gave the land to Abraham and to his descendants, not ours. We We don't have the authority to give it away. It belongs to God. And as a result, he had made the statement countering these discussions by saying, the Bible is not a deed to the land of Israel. And then he went further. I do not believe in the greater Israel. What is the greater Israel? That's the teaching of Genesis 12 through Genesis 15, when God promised Abraham the land all the way from the Mediterranean, the river of the Nile, all the way to the Euphrates River. Which, by the way, maybe only in the time of King David have we ever seen when Israel was anywhere near that amount of land. For the most part, we in Israel have seen Israel, that small portion there to the west of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. We just call it the down payment. God's down payment for the greater Israel to come in the kingdom. And so he's saying, I don't believe in the greater Israel. And he scoffed at God. And as a result, there was great shock when people heard that. At the moment that observant Jews were observing Havdalah, Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated. What Sabbath was it? Lech Lecha, the teaching of the greater Israel. At the moment that God was separating Sabbath from the earth, He separated Yitzhak Rabin from the living over that passage of Scripture. And in Israel, those who are observant and those who are believers knew God took the king of Israel out because he had spoken against the word of God. No question whatsoever. And then shock began to set in. Because in Daniel 9.27... It says, and he will confirm or make stronger the covenant with many for one week. The words with many in Hebrew are la-rabim. He will confirm the covenant with rabim for one week. His name is in that prophecy. Because that's the meaning of his name. The many strong ones, the many leaders. And suddenly... The Rabin agreement was now this Middle East peace accord. And all the leaders of the world came to Jerusalem to his funeral in November of 1995. It was a world event. And we watched every world leader get up and stand over his grave and say to Yitzhak Rabin, we will confirm this agreement with you, Rabin, and we now make an agreement with your grave the pact with the grave, the very words. So we pay close attention to who's at this funeral, who's confirming this agreement. There's a very interesting fellow at this agreement. His name is Prince Charles of Wales. He's standing on the front row confirming the agreement with other leaders. That also is very significant because, you see, way back there, back in the early 80s, the Lord had me write a computer program. I wrote a computer program that took the Hebrew gematria, part of the Torah understanding at the sod level, the mysterious level, where numbers are equal to certain letters. And I applied this system to the English language. Why English? Because it's the common language of the world. And I transferred those values over to the exact same system. And with absolutely no idea as to whose name would equal what, we pulled down from our encyclopedias the names of every world leader in the world. And we entered them into this computer program, and one name hit, equaling 666. The name is Prince Charles of Wales. Now, I'm Hebrew. I need to see it in Hebrew. His name translated in Hebrew is Nasich Charles Mem Wales. And those Hebrew letters equal 666. His name equals 666 in English and in Hebrew. And what's so interesting about him is in his coat of arms is every biblical symbol given to the Antichrist from every prophet. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In Revelation chapter 13, it says, I saw the beast. And he had a body of a leopard, the feet of a bear, the mouth of a lion. It's a symbol, right? It's a symbolic prophecy. But John said, I saw it. By the way, in Prince Charles' coat of arms, He's for the first time in the history of the monarchy. He has 10 heraldic beasts. What heraldic beast am I talking about? It's called the lions or the leopards of England. It's made up of three creatures. The body of a leopard, the feet of a bear, the mouth of a lion. It's called the heraldic beast. It is the symbol for the last 500 years of the monarchs of Great Britain and England. And you know what really gets me about that? Of all the biblical scholars that we have running around in the world, not one Christian scholar has ever made the comparison that that Revelation 13, that verse that describes that beast, that that symbol exists in the world associated with those people there. It doesn't stop there. The scripture also says that the dragon will give him his power. Throne and great authority. The day that Prince Charles of Wales in July of 1969 received the title Prince Charles of Wales, he was standing in the courtyard of Canaveron Castle in Wales, surrounded by banners of red dragons. He had a throne chair emblazed with a picture of a red dragon. On it and he was on his knees and his mother put the crown upon his head and she said these words this dragon has given you your power a throne and great authority and she quoted that verse not one biblical scholar has ever taken note that they spoke revelation 132 it doesn't end there the prophecies go on and and on and on. Let me give you one last one to help identify. Daniel eleven twenty one. He will be a despicable man on whom the honor of kingship has not yet been conferred. He will seize the kingdom in a time of tranquility through intrigue and influence. I'm quoting from Prince Charles. He was asked once, what can you do? He says, I have no power of my own. But I have influence, and you'll have to see what I do with it. I have 22 other quotes from him where he quotes the prophecies. So, from a long time ago, we've been watching him real closely. He showed up at Yitzhak Rabin's funeral there to confirm the Rabin agreement with Israel. And Perez became the prime minister of Israel, if you recall there in late 1995. And in late 1995 and in 96, some strange things began to take place with regard to this assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. If you'll recall, there was a videotape of Yitzhak Rabin being assassinated. It shows this Yogil Amir man sneaking in through the bodyguards, reaching in and shooting Yitzhak Rabin from about a distance of about 24 to 30 inches with the gun, Rabin going down, getting back up, getting in the car, they arrest, uh, the man right on the spot, and Rabin is driven off, and then sometime later Rabin shows up at the hospital, he's been mortally wounded, and Rabin dies. Let me tell you some interesting facts about the assassination. The gun that Yagil Amir had will hold nine rounds. It was a nine millimeter. Two shots were fired. Yagil Amir had eight bullets in his gun when it was taken away from him. When the bodyguard who was standing right, Rabin, when the shots were fired, he yelled out into the crowd to all the other GSS agents, they're blanks, they're blanks. And Yitzhak Rabin's wife, Leah Rabin, was told immediately by the GSS, he's okay, it was a fake attempt, they were blanks. Only when Yitzhak Rabin got to the hospital, he was mortally wounded. And in fact, the autopsy reports that the gun that killed him had been directly up against his person and the powder burns of the gun had burned all the way through his clothing into his flesh and that the second bullet had severed his spine. He should not have been able to get up and walk. And there's eight minutes missing from the time that he got in the car until he showed up at the hospital. The evidence is Yitzhak Rabin was not assassinated by Yigal Amir, but in the car after he left. And the bodyguard who got into the car when he left was dead two days later and secretly buried in Israel. And when Yigal Amir was brought before the court for the first time before the public, He cried out to the reporters and he said, this is not what it looks like. This is a trick. And they said, what do you mean? What do you mean? He says, go talk to his bodyguard. He's dead already. Now they were talking about it. It was like the Kennedy assassination. We seem to have some plotting and intrigue going on. It turns out Yagil Amir was a trained GSS agent. Interesting. It seems that there was a plot. Actually, what they've now discovered is that France did this earlier. France had a political campaign going on and there wasn't much public support for it. So the president staged a fake assassination. And as a result, great public empathy and support came to the president. And he was able to carry out his political agenda. And the French and the Israelis have always exchanged ideas and weapons and other things and some people theorize that that's what was really happening here that the labor party was attempting to pull off a fake assassination only somebody in the government said why make it fake and perez became the prime minister almost immediately but then something else happened in the uh, knesset the leader of the likud party benjamin netanyahu stood up in the knesset shortly after these events looked right at Shimon Peres in the eye, and he said, Peres, Israel will be ruled by ballots and not by bullets. And all of a sudden, Shimon Peres, who had at least two more years on his term as prime minister, called for early elections. And we had elections in Israel that then came in the springtime of 1996. I was in Israel in those days, just before the election. And while I was there, I was picking up some of the political banners, the bumper stickers and so forth there for the campaign. And it was really interesting because the Likud party was passing out bumper stickers that said, we're for security. Labor was passing out ones. We're for peace. Everybody's going, peace and security, peace and security. That's all they literally people in the crowds were shouting at each other. And then there was a interesting press report while I was there. It was being leaked to the press that Perez said right after the elections, he was telling the press, I have a surprise announcement for you concerning Jerusalem. And everybody's going, "What? what, what about Jerusalem? We have a surprise announcement. Wait till after the election. And lo and behold, Perez lost. Benjamin Netanyahu became the Prime Minister of Israel by the slimmest of votes in modern historical voting time. And suddenly he didn't get to make his announcement. It turned out his announcement was, we've learned later, he was going to make the deal to give the Temple Mount to the Palestinians forever. And he didn't get to do it. I think God had something to do with that. And um, Yasser Arafat got very depressed after that. So in the summer of 1996, Netanyahu's the new prime minister of Israel. And it turns out that he wrote a very interesting memo to the religious community trying to get their support for the election. Here's what he said. If you will vote for me as the prime minister of Israel in the course of me being the prime minister, I will help you get a piece of the temple mount back. Wow. By the way, this is very significant. If this really is the Middle East Peace Accord, is the 70th week of Israel, that last seven-year thing that we're looking for. We know somewhere in the midst of, or as a result of this agreement, Israel is supposed to be on the Temple Mount again. There's supposed to be another altar built. And when that altar gets shut down, that's supposed to be the start of the Great Tribulation. That's what's supposed to start the decisive destruction that comes upon the earth. So here's the Prime Minister of Israel pledging to the religious community, I'm going to help you get a piece of the Temple Mount. And he had promised it in writing to them. So as we went through that summer and his government began to be formed, the rabbis and all of the religious community were going to Netanyahu and saying, when, when, when are you going to make the decree? Give us a piece of the temple mount. When, when are you going to do it? And in fact, they got very agitated with him and they put a little pressure on him. The rabbis called all of the religious community and said... This was in the summer of 1996. When you hear the shofar sounded on Rosh Hashanah, every Jew go to the Temple Mount and take it. And this got serious. In fact, I had my brethren in Jerusalem calling me up and say, Monty, pray for Jerusalem. We're about to see a bloodbath. This is very dangerous. They are scared to death in the streets of Jerusalem. And so Netanyahu calls the rabbis in. He calms them down. Guys, work with me. It's going to take some time. I'll do my best, but you're going to have to be patient. Work with me. So peace prevails. And the rabbis send the word back out through the Jewish community. Don't go up there on Rosh Hashanah. The only problem was they didn't get the rumor. They turned down the rumor to the Palestinians. The Palestinians heard the rumor the Jews were going to take the Temple Mount. So after Rosh Hashanah, just before we had about Sukkot, they opened the exit door to the rabbi's tunnel that opens out into the Via Della Rosa over by the Lion's Gate. And when they opened in the Palestine, that's in the Arab quarter. And when the Arabs saw that happening, the Israelis opening that up, they said, the Jews are under the Temple Mount. They're taking the Temple Mount. And we had a riot. And 70 people died. The press said, these are apocalyptic numbers. You darn tootin' they are. This is very serious. Very serious business. And it turned out that they were believing that the Jews were going to take the Temple Mount, and that wasn't what was happening. But that's the tension level that was now building. This Middle East Peace Accord is about the Temple Mount now. And the Arabs were saying, when are the Jews going to take it from us? If you recall there in the winter of uh, 97 and leading up to 97, why we had the Hebron negotiations. Netanyahu was trying to put up the interim agreement concerning Hebron and the families that lived in Hebron at Kiryat Arba. They were expecting Netanyahu and his government to back them and support them and and not leave and not turn it over, and he did. And now the religious feel that they've been double-crossed by Netanyahu. He didn't keep his promise about the Temple Mount, and he didn't support the, the families in Hebron. And as a result, nobody liked Netanyahu. What does Netanyahu's name mean? The gift of our God. And what is this gift that we got? Well, it turns out it was a big delay in the Middle East Peace Accord. Because as we go into Purim of 1997, the fourth blood-red moon on the fourth consecutive Hebrew holiday, they just stalemated all the negotiations. It just came to a standstill. Nothing could be done. Everything was locked up. So, from Purim of 1997 into the winter time of 1998, the negotiations are stalemated. There's a lot of charges and countercharges. Israelis are saying that the Palestinians aren't doing their part. The Palestinians are saying the Jews are not doing their part. They're breaking the agreement and so forth. And Finally, toward the summertime there of 98, Netanyahu began to try to move things forward and he made an interesting suggestion. He said, let's stop with the interim agreements. Let's go right to the final agreement. Boy, was I waiting for that, because we know the final agreement is about Jerusalem. And we're going to find out what this thing is really about. But Arafat doesn't want to do that. Here's the reason why. At every interim agreement, he's getting something from Israel. Why stop that process? Why go to the whole thing when I can chip away at them and I keep getting things I want? So he says, Israel, you're not keeping the agreement. I want the interim agreements. And Netanyahu says, this is not working. Let's get to the final thing. This interim thing is not building peace at all. It's not building confidence at all. And so a whole series of Netanyahu scandals begin. And it's clear that the United States no longer likes Benjamin Netanyahu. Clinton can't stand him, begins to snub him. He's talking to Arafat and bringing him over and all those kinds of things, but he won't even meet with Netanyahu when he comes to the United States for various functions. And in fact, the way it built of all of that kind of building up till in about February of 98, I'm not positive, that might have been January, but it's in that early 98 time frame, Clinton finally asked for Netanyahu to come to Washington. And he's going to sit down with Madeleine Albright, and the press reported this. They said, Clinton is going to take Netanyahu to the woodshed. He is going to read him the riot act. He is going to straighten him out. He's going to tell him how the bread gets buttered. What's real interesting was that Netanyahu came into the meeting, and at the very moment that they took their seats there in this meeting, an aide to the president came in to him with an emergency message. The Monica Lewinsky story had just broken. The meeting was adjourned. Benjamin Netanyahu got on a plane and went home and said, it's Mr. Clinton who has to worry about his job, not me. Which was another wonderful example of, you do not mess with the king of Israel and try to take him out. That's the business of God of Israel only. And even if you're the president of the United States, you mess with God's anointed, God is going to mess with you. And as a result, in this country, there is no doubt in any believer's mind, we were watching God judge and embarrass the president of the United States like we have never seen happen before. And in fact, it was leading to impeachment and he was the second president in the history of the United States to be impeached and he almost lost his job. He spent the rest of the year holding on to it. Netanyahu had peace back in Israel. Now, as soon as the impeachment proceedings ended, the president says, I've got to have a success story. I've got to get back on the front page with something other than Monica Lewinsky. And so he said, I know how to do that. What I've always done. The president, our president, is such a great leader. Look, the whole world sees him this way. He solves problems of biblical proportions. (laughs) That is a quote from the White House. And he's going to solve the problem of the entire Middle East. He's going to get these two leaders together, the descendants of Isaac and Ishmael, and he's going to solve this problem for the world. So Arafat's insisting on another interim agreement. So now we have the Y River Accord. And so they came to Y River. How did they really get these two parties that wouldn't even stand each other for the last several months, how did he get them to come? Well, he told Benjamin Netanyahu, if you'll come, I'll give you Jonathan Pollard back, the Israeli spy who's incarcerated in the United States. And he told Yasser Arafat, I'll get you $3 billion. That's enough to get the two to come together. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. Arafat got the $3 billion, and Netanyahu went home empty-handed. And there was a dispute over: was it 13% of the land, 40.1% of the land, or 90% of the land, or 40.1% of of 90%, or 13% of 40%, or what? It got, because there was no real agreement on anything and it died this agreement died immediately upon landing back in Israel it did not work because it was all a sham no matter who you are no matter where you've been no matter what you've done the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob is the same yesterday today and forever find the Savior find Yeshua Hamashiach find the truth on Solace Radio we pray you're blessed by our new channel as always hit the like button share the program and subscribe and don't forget to comment or let us know how the teaching has touched you. Till we meet again, peace. Talk radio for inquisitive people. Solace Radio, Conestoga, Colorado.